Warning, the Catholic Man Show contains high levels of manliness. If you think you may be too weak to withstand the manliness represented in the following program, please do yourself a favor and stop listening now. If you choose to continue in spite of this warning, if at any time you feel yourself overcome by the manliness, stop immediately and consult your closest medical professional. And now, for the not-so-fair, faint, or frilly, we present The Catholic Man Show. Welcome to the Catholic Man Show. We're on the Lord's team, the winning side. So raise your glass. Adam Minahan here sitting with David Niles and Carlo Broussard in Arkansas. Broussard. 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 No, it's Broussard. Not Broussard. Broussard. The emphasis is on the ooh. Bru. Broussard. Right. But you are not quite doing it right. Okay. Sorry. I forgive you. Carlo, I apologize. Apology Welcome to the show. accepted, Adam. Carlo, okay. how do, would you say, just say your name. Carlo Broussard. No, but say it right. Say it the right way. Carlo Broussard. Okay, that was better. Yeah. Thank you. Actually, when I moved out of Louisiana yeah. to Washington State, I had to learn how to pronounce my last name in a different way so that people actually understood what the heck I was saying. So I had to say Broussard. Carlo Broussard. <laughs> <laughs> I would actually go in front of the mirror and like practice saying my name. Would you? Yeah, so I could learn how to reposition my lips and retrain my <laughs> retrain facial muscles, you know? Yeah. You know, like all every part of the country has their own, you know, like dialect yeah. and accent. But I feel like Louisiana We're a breed of our own. It it, it, it really is. Yeah. Okay, so one time <laughs> I was driving. I went to go p- Man, help when my. When we talk, we need subtitles, yeah. Yeah, you gotta put those subtitles. Oh, I know. <laughs> well, I was. I went to help my cousin move back to Oklahoma from Orlando, and so we were coming through Louisiana. And we stopped at this gas station, and the guy there was a guy in the gas station who said something to me, <laughs> and it was like <laughs> it just sounded like habla babla babla. And I said, what? <laughs> kind of like the dude on Waterboy, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I said, what? And he said it again. I said, what? And he said it again. And I said, what? And he said it again. And I, it's like, all right. At this point, I realized, I'm just not going to get it. And I, I, I wasn't going to make him repeat it, you know? So I just said, no, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with that. And I walked out. And I was like, I really hope that made sense. And like, I, don't, I didn't want to be rude to that guy, but... That's not you know? all of us in southern Louisiana. There yeah. are some of us who are sophisticated, you right. know? Right, mm. yeah. <laughs> so. Fisticated. Hey, that's, that's good, too. We'll accept that, too, brother. Fisticated. <laughs> so we're in Rogers, Arkansas. We're going through a marriage retreat with Carlo Broussard. Yes, we, we are. We uh, had him come out from Car- from Catholic Answers to uh, give a retreat with yeah. the, the Graylesses, the Posadas. Uh, the Minahans. The Minahans and the Niles. And it's been an awesome retreat thus far. We've kind of go- gone through, like, what does Aquinas say about love in his treatise on love? Yeah. And it, the friendship uh, that Aquinas talks about and how that relates to marriage. The spousal friendship. Yeah. Spousal friendship. And, Carlo, you have done a great job. Well, thank you, It's David. been It's been really awesome. Uh, 
so if anybody is listening who wants, who's looking a for somebody to come out retreat? and do a, a couples retreat, yeah, have Carlo out. Um, because, yeah, it's fun. Because I feel like the retreat that you're putting on for us here is not something that you're going to get other places. You know, right. uh, because you're a, a Thomist, you know, or you aspire to be a. T- I uh, know that you wouldn't <laughs> say you're a Thomist. <laughs> for, to me, for my Thomist friends out there listening, to I me, am a you're Thomist a Thomist in training. Yes, and uh, so what you're putting on is is really a Thomist marriage couples retreat. A Thomistic married couples retreat. Yes, th- thank yeah, you. The, the idea Which is, is awesome. It's yeah, great. Yeah, it's cool. The idea is to try to, I, I combed through some of the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas and asking myself, what can I extract here that would be applicable to married couples in the married life, right? right? But specifically focusing on the spousal relationship there. So I looked, because I, I knew St. Thomas Aquinas calls marriage the maximal, the maximum friendship, the highest form of friendship. So, you know, that presupposes an understanding of friendship and the types of friendship and how those types of friendship relate to the marriage, the spousal friendship. And then also to combing the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas and what he says about love and seeing how that is applicable to the married life. Sometimes he directly makes connections to husband and wife when talking about love. Sometimes he doesn't, but it's obviously can be connected, right? Yeah. And then later tonight, we're going to reflect upon uh, tips for the married life, uh, wisdom for married couples from reason and revelation, and looking at some other things that St. Thomas Aquinas has to say uh, for the virtues and some principles there that we can extract for married life, and then looking to divine revelation and what can we learn from God's revelation of himself that we can actually take into the spousal friendship and foster that friendship and that union. And then we also talked a little bit about the marriage debt, didn't we? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, we almost did this episode on the marriage debt. We we were talking about it, and we thought, man, there's so many ways we could go with this episode, you know, right. with, with what we talked about. and uh, But... Ultimately, what we really wanted to do was highlight a new book that you have coming That's out from right. Catholic Answers. Yeah. and From the marriage debt to the new book there, brother. Yeah, well, which and Which is not on the marriage debt. Which is not <laughs> on the marriage debt, but it's it's on a topic that has been controversial since probably the Reformation or, yeah. or begin, or, yeah. or before, which is on, um, on purgatory. That's right. Uh, and so the title of the book is... Purgatory is for real. So that's the claim I'm making. And I, I must admit, it's a bit of a ripoff of the book, you know, like heaven is for real, <laughs> right? You know, and so the idea is purgatory for real, kind of a catchy title there. But the subtitle is good news about the afterlife for those who aren't perfect yet. And so what, what, what I'm trying to do in the book is to provide basic apologetics for purgatory and defending that definitive Catholic teaching. So we're looking right. at purgatory in the Bible. Yeah. We're looking at purgatory... You know, within the Bible section, looking at purgatory in Jesus' teaching, purgatory in St. Paul's teaching, purgatory in the Old Testament. And I actually have a section where we just do a survey of aspects of the Catholic doctrine of purgatory found in various other religious traditions, both n- uh, non-Christian religious traditions and even non-Catholic religious traditions. So among Christians, non-Catholic Christian traditions. So even Christians outside the visible boundaries of the Catholic Church affirm some aspects of the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. So it's apologetical in nature, but there are three independent sections in the book where I try to emphasize the good news about purgatory, right? And so the three sections are joyful truths about purgatory, 
Number one, it provides consolation for believers. Number two, it, um, it, it, it entails joys. Purgatory entails joys that go beyond the joys of this life. And then number three, it inspires the pursuit of holiness. And mm. so those three joyful truths of purgatory constitute the good news. You know, because there's two extremes when people talk about purgatory and think about purgatory. So on one side, one extreme, which has kind of been the emphasis in the tradition, is like it's just like right above the tip of the flames of hell, right? It's like right. It's, it's hell just temporarily, you know? So you've had an emphasis on the gloom of purgatory. The other side of the extreme is that it's nothing but merely a clean-up job before heaven, right. and it's just sort of the waiting room before yeah. you get there and the beatific vision. Almost right? like a pre-party. Yeah. You know, like, it's yeah. great, you know, I'm shooting for purgatory, you right, know. Right, right. Like. And, and it could lend itself to that. Right? right. And so what I try to do in the book is to take a, a, a middle approach, a healthy approach, which I think is the Catholic approach, and yes, to affirm there is suffering involved. There will be, quote-unquote, pain involved, and we could parse that out and what we mean by pain for a separated soul, right? Mm -hmm. But there will be suffering involved on account of wrongdoing, so that's a part of it. But at the same time, we can't, we can't exclude... We can't exclude the joys of that purgatorial, postmortem purgatorial, purgatorial experience because there are certain joys present that contextualize the suffering involved. Yeah. And so it's a both-and approach, right? And we find that in the tradition. We find that in uh, magisterial teaching. Um, so uh, that's, that's kind of what I'm shooting for in the book. And the book's coming out... We're hoping, like, maybe perhaps the end of this month, as we're recording, we're in the beginning of September here, so perhaps the end of this month, maybe perhaps mid-October, it kind of all depends where we're at in the process now. If we sent the manuscript off for a typesetting, waiting for the galley copy, and we do a few more read-throughs, try yeah. to catch some of the typos or mistakes here and there, and so we're 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 approaching the end there. We're almost there, man. Sweet. Yeah. So I, I'm looking forward. Oh, to it. Oh, but that it. feels good. It does. Yeah, it does feel good, especially after going through the gauntlet at Catholic Answers, mm -hmm. <laughs> because not only do we get apologetical reviews, we get editorial reviews of the manuscript. So an apologist is assigned to review the manuscript. So it's peer reviewed, right, amongst our our own peers yeah. in house or even subcontracted apologists out of the house. But our editorial review are, is done by editors who have some theological chops, right? Right. So, like, they're apologists in their own right. They're very smart, very bright. You know, our, our chief editor, Todd Agliolauro, we subcontracted out with this editor, Drew Belsky is his name. Or it might be Blesky. I might be mixing that up. So, Drew, if you're listening, I apologize for that. But, but he's got some theological chops in his own right. So, whenever he's editing... He's thinking critically, you know. Sure. And he's thinking critically and saying, "Hey, make this stronger." And here's an objection. So here's something you didn't think about, or Amen. maybe not. You know, here's something that you could should consider or something yeah, like that. Yeah. So sweet. Well, when we get back, we'll we'll jump into the topic of uh, purgatory. We're on the Lord's team, the winning side. So raise your glass.
Welcome back to the Catholic Man Show. I'm David Niles here with Adam Minahan, Carlo Broussard in the Peanut Gallery. We have Juan Posada and Mr. Eric Grayless. Eric, have you ever uh, sat in on an episode before? Other than the campout, you're always you're obviously at the campout. Not in studio. So this is still not in studio, but maybe a little closer than... It's closer than to being in studio than the campout. We're currently on the back porch of an awesome lake house. Shout out to the Schmidt family. Amen to that. For letting us use the, uh, yeah, for, for the retreat this weekend. Facilitating the facility. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't mention this in the opening segment, we are drinking. Oh yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, full-grown ombre, which we had just the other day. Mm-hmm. We're uh, revisiting it. We are revisiting full-grown ombre. Juan, thank you to Juan. Juan showed up with some, and it's this is such a good beer. We had to have it again. Mm-hmm. I, it this is an expensive beer. Juan, you said it was eighteen dollars for four of them. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so like. It's a special this beer. Is a, this is a cel- this is a special occasion beer, right? <laughs> Unless, of course, you're just really rich and like <laughs> money's not an object. Like, yeah, like if money is just not that big of a deal for you, then you know, stock your fridge with this <laughs> yeah. and invite invite a, great, a bunch of friends over. It's a great okay? imperial style. Invite me over, right? <laughs> uh, because yeah, it is. It's it's got like chocolate and uh, uh, pepper. And, you know, it's like spicy. It's like a spicy chocolate coffee. Imperial Stout. Imperial Stout. Very good. Just Speaking of awesome. Stout, 12.1%. A friend of mine, Dr. Jared Stout, yeah. uh, he recently came out a book with like Catholic culture. He was a professor of mine at the Augustine Institute when I was working on my master's in theology. But he's a big beer guy. I'd be interested to know what he would say about yeah, that beer. I would too. Uh, yeah. I have a feeling he would say that he likes it very much. That's, oh, yeah? That's what I would... That would be yeah, my right. guess. Dr. Stout, guy. if you're out there listening, yeah. man, the challenge is on. And, you know, of course, Dr. Stout has a beer... You know the phrase, nomen est omen, that the name is the destiny. Mm. Uh, that is just... You see that all the time. Maybe where, that's why he's so into beer, mm-hmm. right? Well, <laughs> that like, if someone with a certain name, they end up fulfilling... Almost like it's, you know, it's like, I think part of it's psychology. You were given this name and you kind of like, <laughs> oh, whatever. And you got to live up to the name. Right. Man. You ended up like trying it out and it worked. But it's right. just funny how often that worked. you yeah. see that happen in real life. Yeah. Anyway. So we're talking about purgatory today. Yes, we're talking uh, about purgatory. There's a lot of, lot of misconceptions. There's a lot of misconceptions on the protestant and atheistic side there's also a lot of misconceptions on the catholic side yeah it's a topic that a lot of people don't understand they think they understand it until yeah. it's it, the the argument or the uh the principles laid out and then all of a sudden I, it's like oh wow i didn't really even consider yeah, this sure. one of the things that I, I i would like to maybe start out with is um a funeral yeah a catholic funeral a lot of times, There's no need to have one because they're just automatically canonized. Right, that's the problem. Right, right. is that it, when you know when David dies, we're all going to get up and talk about how great he was of a person, and everybody, you know, and we're going to basically a great guy. But you're going to do it in all humility. In all humility, <laughs> right. and and we're basically going to be canonizing him. His, the paperwork's already getting started, and he's still alive. <laughs> it's in my will that upon my death, uh, my picture and biography is to be sent to every cardinal. <laughs> to, to review, yeah, just nice. 
Exactly. So that they get more familiar with my achievements. <laughs> but that's not the purpose of the Catholic funeral, right? right? The purpose of the Catholic funeral is to pray for the soul that has passed. And right. we don't assume that, that the, the soul has gone directly to heaven. Right. Even if that person is a super holy person. Right. Uh, even if, you know, your grandmother or grandfather who has lived their uh, full Catholic life, sacramental life, we don't assume that they're going right. straight to heaven. Correct. Uh, you know, and that's the purpose of us all gathering together as the church militant in the body of Christ to pray for that soul. Amen. Um, and so I, 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 it, it kind of bothers me sometimes right. when I go to a Catholic funeral and the idea of not, uh, the idea of praying for that soul is kind of overlooked or glossed yeah. over in the aspect of, oh, well, this person is just such a holy person that right. let's just rejoice that they're in heaven. And it's a disservice, right? Wouldn't it be a disservice? Yep, it's a disservice uh, to the departed soul because the souls in purgatory don't do anything for themselves, right? Their purification is entirely passive, whether bestowed upon them from the outside by God or also due to... Uh, the completion of their purification caused by the prayers of the faithful here on earth, that we can assist them in their final purgation, the purging of the guilt of venial sin, the purging of unhealthy attachments to created goods, and also the discharging of any remaining debt of temporal punishment due for sin. And this gets into the whole principle and the idea of vicarious satisfaction, that we can voluntarily undergo suffering in our life on behalf of the departed soul, and given the bond of charity, our satisfaction, right, our endurance of that suffering out of love for the departed soul can be applied to them and discharge some of the debt of temporal punishment due for sin, in imitation of Christ, who vicariously satisfied and remitted debt for our, uh, the debt of punishment for our sins, right, both eternal and temporal. But Christ wills that we participate and cooperate in his providential plan of applying the merits of the cross to remit the debt of temporal punishment due for past forgiven sins, right? Although his death is sufficient to entirely remit that, he has willed that we participate with him in that providential order to help one another out, right? Remitting that debt of temporal punishment. So it's a disservice to the departed soul, but also it's a disservice to ourselves, because whenever at a Catholic funeral mass and the prayer for the faithful departed is not emphasized and uh, is not a call to action, right? We actually do a disservice to ourselves because we're robbing us of the opportunity to perform a spiritual work of mercy and pray for the dead. Right. Which in turn point. brings about graces for our own growth in holiness, yeah. right? So this is one of the things I point out in my book. And one of the joyful truths is that the doctrine of purgatory inspires the pursuit of holiness in as much as it inspires us to have a loving concern for the suffering souls, right? that we can actually perform acts of charity on their behalf, and that, as a consequence, as an effect, has um, an effect on us, that right. we grow in grace, that we grow in charity. So in loving others, right, We, you know, the, the teaching of the Second Vatican Council, Pope St. John Paul II, we find ourselves in the gift of self, right? Well, that gift of self is not only for the living, but also for the faithful departed. And in that act of charity, we in turn can grow in holiness, right? So it's a twofold disservice, both to the faithful departed and to ourselves. 
Right. And yeah. of course, it's a disservice to the church herself, right? I mean, because right. the church has the funeral mass to pray for. So it's sort of thwarting the telos of, of what the mass is ordered for, that particular mass is ordered for, you know? You know, in the last decade or so, life hacks kind of, you know, became a thing on the internet where you'd look up, oh, here's a life hack. Here's an easy way to do something that, you know, people do all the time. Praying for the souls in purgatory is sort of like an afterlife hack mm. where if you, if, you know, <laughs> if you devote, uh, you know, if you, if you come up with a um, devotion, if you develop the devotion, praying for the souls in purgatory, your, your prayers very likely will be the means or one of the means by which a soul is released from purgatory. And by justice, that soul will spend the rest of your life praying for you right uh, because you d- you were the I don't know what a cause that Tom St. Thomas would say you know it's like secondary cause the secondary cause he's like the only one I know is the efficient cause and I that's you're not se- it you're that, no, I, and no you are you're a secondary efficient cause God see, is the uh, primary uh, yeah. first see, efficient yeah. cause see Great job, dude. Thank you. That's just the only one I know. It's like I'm not I didn't actually get it right. I just I was gonna give you a high five anyway. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So no, if, God, if, if you spend true. your life yeah. praying for the souls in purgatory, yeah, they will, they will spend your life praying for, for you. You, yeah. you know, and so like think of the graces that that we're missing out on by not praying for them. But w- I want to ask you this question. But at the same time, it's very important that we the primary focus should be ordered toward them right. out of love. We're not doing it for selfish right. reasons. The right. self-fulfillment and the happiness that flows from the increase in grace is a consequence of an effect of that primary aim. Yeah, of, good distinction. Of, of mm-hmm. acting out of charity. Right, yeah. But there is, you know, like we strive to, we live by grace. Right. I mean, God God gives grace. Right. And I I want all of his graces. I will. I want to do everything I can to get as much grace as possible. I need as much help as yeah, I need. I'm totally, I, I am totally entirely reliant on his grace to do good. So here's here's my question. Supernatural is good, the to be ex- technically correct. Is the experience of purgatory, is it similar for all souls? Or is the suffering that a soul experiences in purgatory as unique as as the soul who is in purgatory. You know, like, yeah. it, you know, in hell, there's kind of the... Levels the, of hell. Well, and, well, you know, it's like you, you get the picture of, like, it's this lake of fire, as if right. all souls in hell experience this, like they're being burned alive, and that's just what hell is like for everybody. I don't think that's actually the way it is. You know, I think that well, the, right the hell that, in, that souls... they separated souls, but when they get their incorruptible bodies back, it's going right, to be yeah. some serious sensory pain going on. Sh- but, sure. Sure, but I you know, I, I I think that hell is kind of a unique suffering. You know, depending well, on sure. the life that the life that you lived, is purgatory a unique suffering? Like, is yes. it tailor made for your specific sins? <laughs> yeah, or well, attachments to sins? Right. Yes, thank you. That's a better every, way to say it. Every soul will suffer in proportion to the rootedness of the unhealthy attachments to created goods. And any remaining debt of temporal punishment due for past sin, depending upon that, will be that will determine the proportion of the suffering of that particular soul. And that's all going to be different for each one of us. Okay, okay I want to talk a little bit more about yep. this on the other side of the break. Okay, we'll be right back. September is the month of Our Lady of Sorrows. 
there are a lot of things that in this world that we need to be praying for, and what better way to honor our mother than picking up a Catholic Woodworker rosary. Go to catholicwoodworker.com. Use the promo code TCMS. That's the Catholic Man Show. TCMS. You will get a discount on all of your purchases. This is heirloom quality rosaries that will last forever. I know my son cannot break them. and He has broken almost every other rosary. So go to catholicwoodworker.com. Use the promo code TCMS at checkout. Welcome back to the Catholic Man Show. Sitting here talking with Carlo, the Cajun uncaging the truth, a <laughs> nickname that we have tried our best to get to catch on. I like it, bro. We even told Sai, like Sai, you need, we, you need to start introducing Carlo as the Cajun uncaging the truth. That's pretty cool. Sai so, Kellett, Catholic Answers Live, by the way. Yeah, so hopefully he'll start doing that. We need Catholic.com. Catholic.com. We need to... uh, You guys really nailed, like... Carl Keating, baby. The website titles. Kudos to Carl Keating, man. Yeah. I'm sure you've gotten some crazy amount of, like, emails saying, like, we'll pay you a lot of money for Catholic.com. I don't know. I'm in sales, not in management. But (laughs) when Carl Carl Keating was genius, when he first heard about the internet... Carl Keating was our founder at Catholic Answers, and when he first heard about this thing called the internet... And these website names, he got Catholic.com, baby. That's awesome. Brilliant. I know, right? Yeah. He probably he probably got it for almost nothing, too. Right. Yeah. yeah. He just first won there, you know. Yeah. Okay, so on the... Uh, so, yeah, before, like, I want to finish this question. So, yeah, we're talking ahead. about purgatory and how it's unique to the, like, the suffering soul. that you experience. Is that because purgatory is medicine? Well, it is medicinal in as much as it's removing those impediments that impede a soul from entering into the beatific vision. Um, And this is, you know, this was related to a point that we're going to talk about in a few minutes here, that every soul there is guaranteed entrance into the beatific vision. But there are impediments impeding that entrance that must be taken care of. Right. through this final, what we call final purification, right? That's how the Catechism defines purgatory. In paragraph 1030 through 1031, that purgatory is this final purification of the elect, namely those who die a friend of Jesus. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> is my friend. <laughs> For your listeners out there, we watched a cheesy I video about friend of Jesus. Jesus. Yep. So that's we introduced. The, that's the we joke. gave some. Uh, <laughs> we gave some uh, purgatory time for uh, right. Carlo. Uh, but right. sincerely, though, those who die with sanctifying grace, in friendship with Christ, they're guaranteed the beatific vision. But if they have any remaining guilt of venial sin, unhealthy attachments to created goods or debt of temporal punishment due for sin. And, of course, that whole presupposes a whole understanding of punishment, the debt of punishment, yeah. etc. But any of, if, if any of those things are remaining, we call these the remnants of sin, right? So if any of these things are remaining, those serve as impediments for entrance into the beatific vision. So they have to get taken care of, and every soul is going to have a different degree of those impediments, right? Mm-hmm. So consequently, they're going to experience the suffering in different degrees. Aquinas, when talking about unhealthy attachments that's an effect of sin, he does affirm that 
the suffering of the soul will be dependent upon how rooted those unhealthy attachments are. So the, the deeper the attachment to the created good in an inordinate way, the more intense the reordering of the will right. will be, right? For someone who doesn't have such a rooted, unhealthy attachment. So the experience in purgatory will vary okay. in suffering and in length. Yes. Now, length is length kind of is a, a... That's an interesting... That's an interesting... I actually I have a, a little bit on this in my book. In, in one of the chapters, we think through the theology of purgatory. And the question of time comes up in purgatory, right? So one, one of the key things is that the duration of the experience, the duration of existence in this post-mortem state is not going to be experienced in the same way as we experience time at, within our bodies, right? Because okay. change within corporeal reality... Because we will not have our body in purgatory. Correct. Now, we're, what we, about those who die? Like, what about those... Nobody gets a body until the general resurrection at the end of time. Okay, so everyone will have finished purgatory by yes. then? Purgatory is only temporary okay, in, so that, in that there will no longer be... At, the final judgment at the end of time... Everybody's wrapped up purgatory. Purgatory is going to be okay. wrapped up. Okay, so I did any not soul, know that. Any soul in purgatory from now until then, or any soul in purgatory at that time, undergoing some final purification, all final purifications are going to be complete. For because the, for we, the know, righteous. we know nothing unclean enters heaven. Yeah. Revelation twenty one twenty seven. Right. And so, uh, also, uh, our Blessed Mother said in the apparition of Fatima, she said that there was some soul they they asked about a friend and she said that she was going to be in purgatory till the end of time. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and that would match up with what the tradition is in theology, like the theological tradition, that it is possible that a soul could have such uh, remnants of sin that that soul would remain in the final purification until the end of time. But here's, here's the key about the time experience, right, yeah. and the length. So like, Undergoing change as corporeal beings is different than change for spiritual beings, all right? So theologians have speculated about this, and they, they've labeled that experience as eternity. So it's not God's eternity. Wait, say that again? Avaternity. It's like is a, that one word? Yeah, it's like a middle ground between... Okay, so it's not God's eternity, because only God is absolutely unchanging, right? But it's not our time and the change experienced in our time because this is an incorporeal state in the post-mortem state of existence. So there's change in as much as there is potency to act, like a potential being actualized, right? So remnants of sin uh, to this degree, remnants of sin to this degree, given the purgation, right? Uh, a debt of temporal punishment remaining, debt of temporal punishment not remaining. That's a change, right? Mm -hmm. Which can't be ascribed to God in, a, in any way. But it's not the same experience of change because it's not a progressive change, mm -hmm. right, from A to B. The theologians talk about A of eternity mm -hmm. as... In it's not an A to B. It's, it's, it is an A to B, not in the same way as corporeal beings, where it's progressive. Like, it's sort of this um, duration or progressive change of A to B, but it's instantaneous, right? So for the postmortem for the postmortem state of existence you're going to have A to B but it's an instantaneous change. But here's the thing. You can have multiple instantaneous changes in succession. Instantaneous change, instantaneous change, instantaneous change in a successive okay. manner, right? So some souls might undergo an instantaneous change mm -hmm. of the purgation mm -hmm. and entrance into the beatific vision. Other souls might have to undergo multiple 
sure. instantaneous changes, right? So the idea is that the experience of time in the afterlife cannot be measured by our experience of time as corporeal beings. So, so it would be inaccurate to say like, oh, there's three years in purgatory. Like you need to spend three years in purgatory. Yes, I was going to ask you this because hold on, church. Hold on, we need to, we need to take a let's. We get we're getting excited here. Uh, yes, we need true. to take a step back because we haven't really even discussed how somebody gets to purgatory. Verse, you know, in our judgment, uh, so we we die. Person dies. We're going to go to our first judgment. Let's say one. Let's, let's say pick, one. Let's pick one. <laughs> let's, 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 in this example, Juan dies. Right. And even though he has the turtle tattoo, he still makes the he cut. Still, and he has a mustache. He still <laughs> The mustache kind of counterbalances. The, I, say, I think I the mustache. The mustache might very well be that, that which gets him to heaven. I think that helps. Because he's I agree. rocking it, yeah. man. <laughs> I agree. I think it's an efficient cause. I mean, so <laughs> I'm just going to use that phrase for everything tonight. <laughs> Got so, it right once. So, so Juan, so Juan dies. But you can't have an efficient cause unless you have a final. Final cause. cause. Yes. The final cause is the cause of all causes. I like the final cause. He's yes. my favorite. Um, so, so Juan, Juan dies. He 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 goes to his, his the judge his judgment particular judgment particular right? judgment at judgment and he uh, he has let's say he has no mortal sin on his soul which no guilt uh, of mortal sin no so no guilt therefore of, he has no debt of eternal punishment consequently right. he's not going to hell the three steps of, of mortal sin to, to make it a mortal sin is. Grave matter, full knowledge, like deliberate and consent, and, and and if he's morally, do it anyway. if he's morally culpable for a grave, serious offense, and he dies in such a state, hell will be his lot. But if he doesn't, right, and on condition we're assuming which we know he's I'm got a, sanctifying grace in his soul, right, you die in friendship with Jesus, heaven is yours. You're guaranteed heaven. But if there's any sort of defilement on the soul, whether that be guilt of venial sin. Unhealthy attachment to created good. Debt of temporal punishment remaining for sin, right? Which entails sorrow. Mm -hmm. Can't have that in heaven. Those impediments would have to be removed, right? So that's kind of like how you get to purgatory to answer that question, right? You have to be dying in friendship with Jesus, but having some of these remnants of sin that need to get taken care of, right? So this is important. This gets back to the definition of purgatory given by the catechism, the final purification of the elect, so that means all the souls undergoing a final purification, post-mortem purification, are going to heaven. So it's not a second chance, right? It's not like some sort it's of not, second chance. Yeah, it's not like uh, it's not a second chance, which is very You're important. Not getting a second chance to get saved. Right. That okay. Is not the Catholic. So doctor. where, when did purgatory first come into uh, either some kind of writing or something within the church where we understood the what purgatory was? Because obviously. In the Reformation, we they decided that we were making this up, and this wasn't right. even a thing. So, where where was the first earliest writings on purgatory? Well, I mean, if we want to go back, I mean, we could go to our Jewish brethren, right? Second Maccabees twelve. Whether you accept it as inspired or not, that is a window into history. If you don't, there. you should because the it church is, the, the church, church has so. decided yeah. that it is, and yeah. if you don't, you're wrong. And so, in Second Maccabees chapter twelve, you know, you have. An example at, uh, that manifests at least an aspect of postmortem uh, state of existence that we call purgatory, because you have Judas and his soldiers taking up a collection, offering a sacrifice, an atonement for the sins of their fallen comrades, and they pray for their fallen comrades. Right? 
that their sins may be forgiven. And not just the fallen ones, but the ones who had coins in their pockets. Well, they had tokens of Jamnia, which is akin to like a rabbit's foot, some sort kind of, of like ambient, right. Yeah, like, they were. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's some sort of superstitious activity. Apparently, right. it was. It was a. It was a sin. It was a sin. Yeah. And whether it's like mortal sin or not, you know, some of our Protestant friends were countered with that, but we have some, some responses. But the point being is that they prayed for their sins to be forgiven in the afterlife, but the only way to make sense of that prayer is that they believed that sins could be remitted in this post-mortem state of existence, which is not the full Catholic doctrine of purgatory, but it's an aspect of it. It's a building block. Yeah, so we'll talk more on the other side of the break here. Okay. We, we want to welcome uh, our Lady Haley and Lady Pamela and Lady Joan to the, uh, the, the, the join deck? us on the porch. Yes. The porch got a lot more beautiful. We'll be God, right back. It's looking good. Select International Tours is a sponsor of this show. They have been in the past. They ha- they will be for future episodes, and we want to thank them. 2020 has been crazy, guys. As we all know, we've had to uh, adapt to new normals. We've had to rebook trips that we were planning um, we've had to reschedule things that w- with our families. But Select International Tours has stuck with the Catholic Mantra. They've stuck to be a sponsor of the show, even with uh, everything going on. And I know you're probably like us. You're wanting to get back to the normal. You're, you're ready to get back to being able to travel again. And that is why Select International Tours has started rebooking trips that were postponed and adding new ones. They're doing it every single week. That's why you need to go to selectinternationaltours.com. If you're planning a pilgrimage, you're wanting to go to France, to Rome, to the Holy Land, wherever you're wanting to go, use Select International Tours. They've been a big sponsor of our, our show, and we really thank them. So selectinternationaltours.com. Welcome back to the Catholic Man Show. I'm David Niles here with Adam Minahan, Juan Posada, Carlo Broussard. Manliness. Lady Pamela, Lady Joan, Lady Megan, Lady Haley. And last but not least, as if one unnaturally born, <laughs> Mr. Eric Grayless. Thank you for being here, Eric. Ooh, yeah. I equated you to Paul, if that makes you feel better. You and Paul are like the same dude right now. Yeah. <laughs> this last, but last shall be first. Okay. There you go. So, anyway, we're talking about uh, purgatory. purgatory. What are we talking about? Purgatory. Purgatory, I believe. <laughs> okay. So I have a question. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Before you get like, oh, did we not finish? I don't think we finished. Like, we didn't finish. Wh- no, because we got to the Second Maccabees and, and we didn't get, even get to the New Testament of, of Purgatory. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, okay, we're doing yeah, like yeah. a survey of where it's found. Like, did the church in the make Bible? It up, right. Yeah. So let's dispel did, the myth. The church, the church didn't make it up. The church is like didn't make it up. So right. we're talking about Second Maccabees twelve, and in my book, I have a whole section where I go into great detail of where we can find purgatory in Jesus' teaching. Uh, for example, Matthew 12, 32, that's where he says, the sin against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this age nor in the age to come. And I argue that that statement implies that there are some sins that can be forgiven. In the age to in come. In the age to come. And right. that he's referring to the afterlife. And but that, not, not mortal sin. Not mortal sin, only remaining guilt of venial sin. But once sin. again, you have to be perfect to get into heaven. 
So you got to get that venial sin cleaned up. Right. Right. And this is an aspect of the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. And this is, fits well with what we said about Second Maccabees 12, right? Because it's very interesting that when only Matthew records Jesus saying that statement by distinguishing these two ages, like Mark... When he's recording Jesus talking about that statement, he just says, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit, the sin against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, right? But Matthew records it in a different way, drawing this distinction between the age, the two ages, right? Now, it's very interesting, and it's, it's very fitting that Matthew would record Jesus' statement in this way because he's writing to a Jewish audience. And the Jewish audience would be inclined to think, well, wait a minute, Jesus. We believe that some sins can be forgiven in the afterlife. So you're saying this sin can't be forgiven, but what about the other sins, right? Or there's some sins that can be forgiven because that's what we believe. And so it's likely that Matthew includes that, that teaching in that way in order to preempt that question and answer that question for his Jewish audience. And that fits perfectly with Second Maccabees chapter 12, right? So Jesus is teaching within a Jewish milieu, that already believed in the forgiveness of sins in the afterlife, and Jesus is affirming this sin is not like those sins. It can't be forgiven mm-hmm. in the afterlife like other sins can. So I argue for that in Matthew 12, 32, Matthew 5, 25 through 26, where Jesus talks about you know the being thrown into the prison to pay the last penny. Uh, that's good evidence and a hint towards purgatory. St. Paul, in his teaching in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, I have a chapter on that. And then we, I have a chapter on purgatory and early Christian testimony, right? So we have middle of the second century, we have inscriptions, right, on Christian grave sites of requests to pray for the deported. And that would, like for the Jewish people, imply belief that our prayers can assist those in the afterlife. And, of course, that postmortem state of existence couldn't be hell because our prayers wouldn't benefit them, and it can't be heaven because they wouldn't need our prayers, right? right. So these Christian inscriptions on grave sites in, imply that the early Christians in the, ver- in the middle of the second century believed that there was some postmortem state of existence, neither heaven or hell, that our prayers were able to assist. And then we actually have the motif or the theme of a post-mortem purgation, like undergoing suffering on account of wrongdoing, in right at A.D. 200 in the writings of Clement of Alexandria, the writings of Origen, not a church father, but a Christian writer, right, who was a great biblical scholar at the time. And so we see that motif we find that motif in early Christian testimony as early as AD 200. And then it just gets clearer and clearer in subsequent centuries, right? Uh, and then, of course, you have magisterial teaching, right? Pope St. Gregory the Great has some uh, good stuff that I point out in one of my chapters in my book in the 7th century. And Feast then, Day was just recently. Yeah. And then in subsequent centuries, you have church councils and popes and papal bulls talking about aspects of purgatory, particularly... Purgatory being a postmortem state of existence where the debt of temporal punishment remaining for sin is discharged, right? And there's an emphasis on purgatory being this state not only for the remission of any remaining guilt of venial sin, but also to discharge the debt of temporal punishment due for sin. Right. And then you have the infallible teaching of the church. It's the, the doctrine of purgatory doesn't become infallibly taught until the Council of Florence in the 15th century, right? And then it would be reaffirmed at the Council of Trent. I would argue that some of the statements of Trent, as I do in my book, are infallible as well. Right, and it always was an infallible teaching. It just wasn't declared infallible. Correct, correct. And it's not like, oh, then, not like the church 
made it, it up. up. Right. It just it, well, it's finally, an epistemological it, it thing. Declared it right? infallibly. It's an epistemological thing. So like this is a teaching that Christians have been teaching. And we want to know, okay, is this like something that could possibly change theoretically or is it something that will never change, period? And so the church exercises her infallible authority to put her stamp of approval and say, this is infallible truth. It'll never change. And and when anybody who contradicts it. It's you typically know, it's because somebody else has come right. up to combat that, that right. topic, it's, right? The church is simply saying, this is something that has always been and will always be, and I'm now... And now we know we're, it we're in clarifying an way. It. Now the need has come to clarify it for whatever reason. This is reason. true. Yeah. Right. It's, okay. It's not only objectively true, but now we know it epistemologically, right, but, from our perspective. So you can't be a Catholic and not believe in purgatory. That is correct. This is an infallible teaching. Now, there is a distinction between to be made... like. Th- a dogma. They're, right. A dogma is something that the church sees in the deposit of faith, sacred scripture, sacred tradition. That's the highest level of Is this of teaching, a dogma? Right? Uh, there's, I would argue that there doesn't seem to be evidence for it. It seems to be an infallible teaching. It's infallible, right? Really? It's not a dogma because it's like, right. it seems there's like it's in the Bible. A few, there's when, a very few dogmas of the— Well, here's the thing. When you look at—as I point out in my book, when you look at the magisterial documents, nowhere do they say— th- putting it forward to be believed as divinely revealed. That's sort of a formula that you find in the tradition where the church is explicit that this is divine. This is a teaching divinely revealed, right? Okay. So that would be like dogma. It's in the deposit of faith. The church is seeing it in the sacred scripture or sacred mm-hmm. tradition, right? That deposit. Now, there are other teachings that the church declares this is true. It's definitive. It's not going to change. It's somehow related or drawn from the deposit, but it's not found in the deposit of faith, right? In gotcha. the divine revelation. Gotcha. So that when you look at the magisterial teachings on purgatory, you don't... It, I have not yet found any language that would convince me that this is to be believed as divinely revealed although it is to believed as infallible truth and so we assent to it based upon the infallible authority of the church right uh so that would be that distinction to be made there so uh i think you made a good point here just a second that a second ago that uh, purgatory is not just for the remission of sin, but also for the punishment due to sin. So if yeah. you if you are leaving confession, you having made a good confession, you, as right. you leave confession, you have zero sin on the your guilt soul. is the guilt you have is no removed. mortal, right. no venial sin. You are completely sinless. That's and if right. you were like a stray bullet catches you and you just die or whatever, heart attack, whatever. That doesn't mean that you're going straight to heaven. You might still have to account, make an account for the punishment due to sin. Right. You um, might have some unhealthy attachments to created right. goods that need exactly. to be purified. Or you simply might have a suffering due to you on account of past wrongdoing. And this presupposes the idea of punishment, right? So, like, God has a divine order of justice. That's what Aquinas calls it, the order of justice. But what is that? It, it, it's God's divine order for human behavior. Pleasure is supposed to be associated with good behavior. Pain is supposed to be associated with bad behavior. When I take pleasure in bad behavior, something is lacking there. There is a disorder, right? Right. And in that overindulgence of pleasure in the bad behavior, God's divine plan is not being manifest, and thus his glory is being undermined, right? That's the importance of retributive justice, you know that's why that's, right. that's why we, sh- retributive justice is is a good to that, make to reorder the teleological ordering of things, right? right? It's for the good it's, of the person, really. Yeah, because 
manifestation of God's divine order of justice is a truth, and we're all made for the truth. Mm-hmm. And even yes. if the inflicting of pain does not like change the person to like convert and start behaving right, it still is medicinal for the person in order to know, I took pleasure where I ought not to have taken pleasure. I now have pain on account of that bad behavior, and that's right. That's rightly ordered. It is right because that's how God has designed human behavior: pleasure with good behavior, pain for bad behavior. In order to foster our teleological ordering to our ultimate end goal of union with Him, that's Mm -hmm. why He gives pleasure to good behavior because we're supposed to be good behavior as a means of getting to our ultimate life's goal, namely union with God. Right. So whenever we are lacking in the pain due for bad behavior. There's a pain due to that. Now, because God is the one offended, he can discharge any debt without right. inflicting pain, right? He doesn't have to administer the punishment. He, he can do what he wants. He can we do, just, we only right. have about a, a minute left, okay. and I, I want you to talk uh, about Wait, okay, on uh, Catholic Radio. On, on the radio. We're going to do another segment after this. So, so if, if you're listening on the radio, go check out our podcast. Su- subscribe for the rest. to our podcast. But and I also be on the lookout at shop.catholic.com for the book, Purgatory is for Real. Be on the lookout. It's coming out. By Carlo Broussard. By Carlo Broussard. Okay, so I want to get to this point. Purgatory is not something to be desired. We're not shooting for purgatory. Good point. And that's not the, the end goal. The pain, the pain in, in purgatory is what? Well, is it, there's, is there's it mild a, or is it? Uh, the, the stronger tradition is that the intensity is, is there. Is but not, there's a variety of de- de- opinions among theologians on how it relates to the pains of this life. But it's not something, if you. We need to undergo our final our purification here on life the because it's going to be much more intense in purgatory. Taking so penance do what you now can. Yeah. is the Amen. thing to do, and when you get to purgatory, you will regret <laughs> not, not having done more. Not doing more penance now. So seek, by the grace of God, of course, we should seek a life of penance. Amen. To become holy now. Amen. Do it. We're on the Lord's team. The winning side. So raise your glass. We're recording. Okay, let's keep going. Okay, so I. So, so Carla, here's something that I do I do want to ask because it, it's something it's a misconception, especially when it comes to indulgences. Gotta get to his. Oh question yeah, as we'll well. get. Oh, oh, okay. So this kind of this kind of goes into your question. I think. Okay. I think. All right. Uh, go ahead. I remembered his question. Let him so ask. We'll go. Okay. Let him go ahead. Go ahead. Well, give him. Go, go ahead, Eric. Come talk into his microphone. Well, the question was he Eric was asking the question: What is the relationship in the medieval times of assigning days off of? Okay, purgatory? so that was that was oh, my you question. Asked that, that question that was that, what that was I was question. Question. With, with indulgence. That was also right. my Cause, question. Because the indulge, you know, the, there is a misconception on, yeah. uh, you know, you get in a, you, you do an indulgence and it takes off years of purgatory. Yeah, there's this or, tradition that uh, they don't. The church doesn't. I don't think use this no, language no, no, anymore. No, 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 no. Pope Saint Paul the Sixth got rid of it. Right, because uh, I think it was confusing to the yeah, that to, was, yeah. I mean, it faithful. was it was confusing, and and basically, fundamentally, all it was is that this act of charity that the church identifies to be a means by which you can be discharged of the debt of temporal punishment, because that's what indulgence is, yeah. is equivalent to so many years of penance in the early church, right? So if you committed murder and you had to do three years of penance in order to be discharged, you would be forgiven of the guilt of murder, right, through confession. But you would still have a debt of temporal punishment due for that sin. So the church might assign you three years of penance, right? And with that three years, that debt of temporal punishment would be discharged, right? And so the days off of purgatory was just simply to say this act of an, of an indulgence is equivalent to that many years of penance in the early church. That's all it was. Right, so but, you could do this did, penance and it would get, like, it would get you out of 
a year's worth of the penance that was assigned to you. Right. It would be equivalent to a year's worth of penance assigned to you in the year. Like, church. let's say the it, the in penance your, in your life, not in the not in purgatory. Not yet. Yeah, that's right. That's because right. That's, a, not, that's a big distinction, right? Because yeah, we, we're not talking about because that's what people thought. That's it's like, confusion. oh, this is getting me out of three years in purgatory. purgatory. But, but, but the church was saying this is equivalent to three years of penance. That would have been three years of penance here on earth. So in other words, check this. Think of it like this. The church was basically saying, hey, the effect of this good action, the effect of this indulgence, right, is equivalent to the effect of doing three years of penance in the early church. That's basically what it's saying. Because let's say you committed a sin and your penance was for one year. uh, Because people would be not, they would say, you're not allowed into the church for maybe, I'm just making this up for a year. Instead of going to Holy Mass for one year, you will sit outside the church and beg every person who comes in to pray for you. Right. That will be. I don't your, know if they did that. That, but that will be your penance. I'm, I'm just saying, right. like, let's say that that was a penance. That right. could have been what was assigned to yep. you. And the effect of that penitential action would be proportionate to or equivalent to the effect of this indulgence that the church is saying if you perform, you're right. going to have some debt of temporal punishment Or you remitted. could have done an indulgence that would have been like a year's worth. The, this indulgence is a one-year indulgence, which would have gotten you out of that, that penance that was right. assigned it's just, to you. It's just trying to equate to those years, uh, those penitential uh, principles and actions in the early church. I think just from this conversation, you can see why it's the confusing. church decided to... Like, yeah. Let's move away from yeah, the system. Yeah, yeah, and I think and I think that was wise, you know, um, to 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 do that in order to to prevent more confusion. So, just uh, in this conversation, would you s- tell us what a plenary indulgence is? Because that's something that is available that right. the church, you know, the church has received from Christ the ability to bind and loose and wields the. Uh, the merit of the saints, right. you know, uh, for the benefit of the faithful. Correct. Um, and if the church can forgive the guilt of sin, the church can remit or discharge right. the debt of she, sin. She wields the authority of Christ. But on certain conditions, right? Right. And so and she says what they are. So what is a plenary indulgence? Yeah, so and how plen- does one get it? Yeah, what? so a plenary indulgence is simply uh, the full remission of any remaining debt of temporal punishment due for sin by performing this charitable action that the church ascribes the indulgence to, right? Under the certain conditions, one of the key ones being, like, you got to be free from venial sin. And, and, atta- and attachments to that's sin, That's the right? kicker, that's the, the attachment. Yeah. And that's something epistemologically, like, we just can't know, but it's still something that's good to do, right? Because right. it's possible, by God's grace, to achieve that state of holiness. But you can get a right? partial. I mean, now, even if you're going that, for that the... Was, p- that's right, that was the next thing. So, if not full remission then some remission, and that's simply what we call a partial indulgence. So a plenary indulgence, the church says, do action X, whether say this prayer or, you know, Pray for the dead. uh, Yeah, exactly. If you you pray for the dead, go to a cemetery on All Souls Day and pray for the dead. Yeah, there's certain certain activities that uh, the church... Although although I shouldn't use that example because that one one doesn't apply to yourself. The the church says that one only applies Applies to the souls in purgatory. You can earn one for a soul in purgatory. Correct, and applying it to yourself. Yeah, I'd have to look at sort of, you know, the... There's a handbook of indulgence. Okay, so another one is 30 30 minutes, if you go and, and pray before the Blessed Sacrament in exposition, you know, in adoration for 30 minutes, the church says that action can grant you a plenary indulgence. And then, of course, for you, yeah. to grant, and receive so, a plenary so, indulgence, so, you also have to pray for the Pope. 
yeah. have received communion confession. and confession within 20 days, either right. prior or f- in the last 20 days or in the next 20 days. Yeah. And have freedom from attachment to sin. Which is the case. And, and the, he, see, right. here's the thing. If you die, see, the, the upshot, to quote my good friend Pat Flynn out there, the upshot, if you're listening, Pat, he's, he's very fond of that word. The upshot of that and the implication is that if, if that plenary, indul- plenary indulgence takes effect, right? See, this is why you have to be free from the attachment of sin because if the plenary indulgence takes effect and that f- debt of temporal punishment is fully remitted and you die... Boom. Immediate entry Straight to heaven. to heaven. Yeah, because there would be nothing. Now, and this is this is why you got to be free from that unhealthy attachments, right? Uh, because there would be nothing left remaining to impede the saved soul mm-hmm. from entering into the beatific vision. Right. Okay, so you've done a lot of research for this book, and I wanted to ask, like, sometimes purgatory gets... You know, just they talk about ad nauseum over the same the same three questions. It seems like a lot of times it's like because that's the hang up for a lot of yeah, Protestants. You can just listen it's to Catholic answers. answers, and it's like that's one of the main things that they call about, right? right. Yeah, it, that's it, why it, I wrote the book. Right, right. <laughs> it, I was so grateful that the team was like, Carlo, would you like to write the book on purgatory? You're like, like, yes, boom. the number one topic, baby. Yeah. So, but <laughs> right. so what was an interesting top or an interesting find that you? That you you came into yeah. like uh, studying and, and researching this topic that maybe most people don't know about sure, sure. purgatory. So, yeah, so there's actually one thing that stands sticks out for me. So it seems that in modern apologetics and modern presentations of purgatory, uh, apologists seem to we seem to emphasize only a particular aspect of purgatory to the detriment of the exclusion and the loss of other aspects. Namely, we tend to emphasize in our modern approach the sanctification of the soul, right, to the exclusion of the discharge of the debt of temporal punishment for, for sin. Okay, so there's two models, right? This, what is called the satisfaction model and the sanctification model. Okay. So in the sanctification model, the emphasis on remitting the guilt of venial sin and purging unhealthy attachments to created goods, right? Okay. To sanctify the soul and make it holy. Now, the, the, the satisfaction model, although it's, that's a false label because there's really no satisfaction being done in you purgatory. You can't get no satisfaction. Right, it's satispacio because in, I, I, I got was gonna, you. I, I can't get. But they actually do have some satisfaction, though. I mean, this they is know, what the they choice know, is, but they know they're going to heaven. So that's, that's a I was going to ask you about joy. that because they can't actually do anything themselves right, to make, to make satisfaction right so that's why there's something it's distinct so they are undergoing suffering on account of wrongdoing to discharge the debt of temporal punishment and that's under the label of satisfaction model it's like but it's passive not passive re- satisfaction yeah that's yeah. why the tradition calls it satipasio right satisfaction oh, like, yeah to be active like a upon. passive satisfaction yeah, yeah yeah so it's it's achieving the end of satisfaction discharging the debt of temporal punishment, but there's nothing that the soul is doing itself in order to achieve that effect. It's entirely applied to the soul, right? right? Because you, one thing you've been talking to us this weekend about passion yeah, is a acted, passive, like the passion be acted upon. Is yeah, like your passions are you, you don't choose them; they're something acted upon you, right? So, like that's 
Yeah, that's kind of like bringing our conversation. This <laughs> yeah, weekend. yeah, like Purgat- circle, right. from the from love and married life to satisfaction. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, but but the interesting thing in my research is that in modern presentations of purgatory, we always present it in that hey, you got to get cleaned up, right? If you die with some guilt of venial sin between death and glory, it's got to be purged, and that's legit, right? I mean, that's an aspect of the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. But I think for some, not all. But for some, there is an emphasis merely on this sanctification aspect. And I think, unfortunately, to the exclusion, an unfortunate exclusion of that other aspect of the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, which is enshrined in magisterial teaching, and that is the discharging of the debt of temporal punishment remaining for sin. That's in the infallible teaching of the church when it's talking about purgatory. And I do think that in modern presentations, we've have a, we had a tendency to get away from that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think perhaps the reason is out of fear that in the traditional approach to purgatory, they perhaps may have been an overemphasis of that aspect, and it's all doom and gloom, right? And so I can understand the reason behind shifting the focus to the more pleasant aspect of, yeah, you're just becoming holy, right? Getting sanctified. Yeah, but there, I mean, that, uh, even, even in this world, to get to become holy is not a, is not a fun thing. It, that's is a, right. It's a that's difficult right. thing. So, so that was one of the interesting aspects of that shift in our presentation of it. And I think we sure. need to have a more balanced approach. Now, I would argue that the discharge of the debt of temporal punishment um, it can be subordinated to or subsumed within the overarching theme of sanctification, right? Because there is a removal of an impediment inhering in the soul, right? Some some objective debt that's remaining and removing that impediment in order that the soul can experience glory. So I think there is a tie to sanctification. But here's something that is interesting in the, in, in the literature, in the, in the academic literature as well, concerning a, a hybrid view of these two models, right? So the question becomes, you know, what is the means by which the soul is undergoing suffering okay, so to discharge the debt? Okay, so that's that was a question that I was going to ha- ask you because obviously when we get to heaven, our intellect is going to be enlightened. Like, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll know more, right? right? We won't see the divine essence yet, but it will be enlightened. Yes, okay. Due so, to the particular judgment. Okay, so um, at our particular judgment, even if we our, our, our destination is, is purgatory at that time. Not destination. Or, or but not our destination. That's, no, no, no. Postmortem state of experience before yeah. the beef. They were just trying to be yeah. technically yeah, correct. Yes, correct. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about no, that. The, the distinction is, is important. Yeah. Um, that's what happened when you invite a philosopher, a philosopher. on the, Which is on good. The show. Uh, it, right. uh, it needs to be said. Okay, but so do you... Not a philosopher, technically speaking, because I ain't got a PhD, brother. But yeah, I'm working whatever, on it. Whatever. Yeah. What's the difference? <laughs> okay, so... Big difference. So... <laughs> Go ahead. The Adam. mind of a philosopher <laughs> is not granted by a PhD. Okay, like I'm just that's a, a good, that's a good well, point. Well, I'm just a philosopher. I'm a Aristotle. guy. I'm a guy who wonders and loves to seek knowledge of reality. I mean, okay. did, did Saint Thomas Aquinas have a PhD? <laughs> did Aristotle have one? You know, like okay. So, but so it, just trying to respect your, all my philosopher I, friends I, out there. Yeah, who, I, I, who in your particular judgment, fair enough. In your in your in your judgment, in your particular judgment, do you? Uh, is your intellect enlightened enough to where you understand what you were going to possibly get to, to where the suffering is? Oh yeah, because uh, that's the primary, the primary 
within the speculative theology, right? The church doesn't have any position. I love, I love speculative I theology. Because you can't right. tell me it's wrong. Right. <laughs> I can so always this is an important point for your listeners. The church has right. no definitive position on the nature of the suffering, nor on the intensity of the suffering. Right. Like, this is all within the realm of speculative theology. It's pretty strong in the theological tradition, right? So in the theological tradition, the primary form or quote-unquote pain, right? However you parse that out, they don't have bodies, so it's not physical pain, but whatever the primary form of suffering, if mm -hmm. we could use that term, is the pain of loss, similar to the pain, the, it's the like pain of loss in hell, you right? You can see what you're possibly getting, yeah. and yet you can't get to right. it yet. For the souls in hell, the primary pain or suffering is the pain of loss. They have lost the beatific vision, and they know they will lose it for an eternity, for the rest of their existence. Right. For the souls in purgatory, they know... The pain of loss is the delayed possession of the beatific vision, which but is something that's so. This is the question but I was going to ask. But the too. soul desires God because the soul dies and the charity is perfected, right? right? At the moment of death, like they can't increase in charity, but the level of charity they have is perfected. They're going to desire God more in that postmortem state of existence than they will with the body because there's no more distractions, right? So the longing for the ultimate end is going to be the very, but yet delayed is going to be the very source, one source, of a form of suffering. suffering. And that suffering is going to be very intense because as, even in this world... Because the desire the is desire, intense, more intense. Yeah, typically the uh, emotional or spiritual suffering is much more intense than physical suffering. Yeah, we don't, we don't suffer from a lack of the beatific vision now because we just don't desire it enough. Right. <laughs> but the holier you but get... Even, even in a natural the, level, yeah. we, we, can, we, can, we can bring this to a natural level and yeah. understand that that there is a more fit the physical suffering is a lesser than than emotional yes. or spiritual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay so yeah. so that's a form of suffering right so the next question is okay well what about are there secondary forms of suffering right other than the pain of loss so here's the question um i love so here, here's, I, I love that he can give a give the question and answer we don't even have to do anything let's just sit back and <laughs> he, get, he well, gets to give the question we don't have to do anything. okay so here here here's we're talking about discharging the debt of temporal punishment, right? And, right. and the soul undergoing some suffering. So the question becomes, what is the nature of, what is the means by which the soul suffers? Okay, so we talked about one, pain of loss, desiring the beatific vision, it's delayed, that's a source of suffering. Okay, so that's coming from within. All right, so the other question is, what are the other sources of suffering? And ultimately the question is, does God positively inflict suffering from without or is the suffering the purging due to the purging of the unhealthy attachments to created goods? Okay? okay. Or is it both? Right? So here's an interesting thing. The Catechism of the Catholic Church presents, in paragraph 1472, it presents a hybrid view of the sanctification satisfaction model. Right? So the Catechism talks about how there are unhealthy attachments to created goods that are a consequence to sin. Right? Right. And the Catechism says that in the final purification, when those unhealthy attachments to created goods are purged, it says this remits the temporal, this is, um, this purgation, how does it say it explicitly? I can't remember. This purgation uh, discharge, basically discharges the debt of temporal punishment. Right? And it, it, mm -hmm. it says what is called temporal punishment. So what the church is affirming is that at least one way we know in which the soul undergoes suffering to discharge the debt of temporal punishment is by way 
of passively receiving from God this purgation of reordering our will and purging us of the unhealthy attachments. Because that's going to be painful, right? Right. Uh, Quote, unquote, painful. There's going to be some suffering involved there, and that suffering accounts for discharging the debt of temporal punishment. Mm -hmm. You follow me? Now, that that affirmation only entails at least we know of this way, right, to bring about sanctification of the soul. But the next question is, okay, well, it's not necessarily denying the possibility that God could positively inflict some suffering on the soul apart from, distinct from, purging the unhealthy attachments. Does that make sense? God inflicting the... Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, God would be inflicting it in the former sense as well because He's the one doing the purging. I mean, He's the final cause. He's He's the efficient cause in efficient, this case, <laughs> and the final cause. Right? Well, He would be the final cause, causing the suffering in as much as one is longing for the end. Yeah, is right? He always the final cause? He's always the final cause, but yeah. He's always always He's the efficient cause, efficient cause as well. So, but here's the here's the interesting question. So Aqu- Aquinas in the tradition, you know, are answering this question: Is there a distinct infliction of suffering upon the soul that's distinct from purging the unhealthy attachments, right? And the answer is yes in the theological tradition. And then they ask, well, how is that? Well, some speculated about material fire, right? Right. And Aquinas affirms that he thinks it's possible for a corporeal fire to actually... Well, right. it, well, fire is used in yeah, 1 right. Corinthians that's 3. A, that seems to be an analogy. Right. That's right. So you have a diversity of opinions. Some take it as metaphorical in order to convey the idea of purification. The tradition, a strong tradition, not the tradition, but a strong theological tradition takes it literally. literally. Like there's a corporeal fire, and Aquinas gives, once again, reasons why he thinks that is the case. Like a corporeal fire could, could cause suffering on an immaterial soul, right? An immaterial substance. Without our bodies. By detaining. Simply by the corporeal fire. Now, this would require a miracle of God, right? Now, we're for your listeners, we're in speculative theology here. This is not church teaching, okay? So, this is basically infallible. (laughs) (laughs) Thus, the church church said, this isn't We're not saying it. The church church is saying it. The church is not saying this, all right? So, (laughs) all right. So, so Aquinas would say that the corporeal fire can cause suffering on the soul by detaining it. Yeah. That's going to require a, mirac- a, a miraculous feat, a divine power, right? So is God, it the fire of his love? No, they're, no, they're saying it's like a real we're, fire. Real fire. Right? Okay. Uh, what, whatever that's going to be in, you know, in the afterlife, like a corporeal, real physical fire that's okay. somehow detaining the soul. Now, okay. well, there's some evidence others, for this. Others would reject that. There is some no. evidence for this. You know, uh, when you read the diary of St. Faustina, um, one of the things she talks about is there was a nun in her convent who died, who appeared to her at night, and her and like so she right. appeared to her and she was on fire, right? And said and she said I am suffering, these flames are burning me. Please pray for my soul. I'm in purgatory. Yeah. And so she did. She prayed for it, and the next night she appeared again, and the flames were even more intense. And she said I'm suffering, and Faustina yeah. said I did pray for you, and. The, the nun said, I know you did, but God applied those prayers to somebody else. Please, <laughs> please pray for me. And so yeah. she prayed for a second time. And then the right. next night she appeared yeah. and she said, thank you for your prayers. I have been, you know, yeah. not to say that 
everybody's going you know just gonna yeah. be that fast. I mean, once again, time is yeah. not the same, but but there is some there's well, the, you know that's yeah, the, the some evidence to yeah, say that. Well, the problem is is that apparitions can take. Pri- yeah, you can it's interpret private, it. In a, it's private revelation. No, no, no. Yeah, what absolutely. I'm saying is that even if it's legit. The appearance in flames could simply be a visible manifestation pointing to some other reality. Sure. Not that it's literal flames, but that it's representing, hey, I'm in, I'm a soul in purgatory. Newsflash, right? And like I'm an suffering. angel might, like an angel might appear with wings to let the person know this is an this angel, angel, not right. a human being, right? So, I mean, you can interpret that manifestation in a variety of ways sure. that doesn't restrict you to corporeal fire. But okay. the point being is that in the theological traditions, theologians have speculated about it. But some have said, well, okay, well, maybe not a corporeal fire, but is it possible that God could even inflict some form of sensory pain, right? To the intellect. Without, like, well, how a sensory pain for a separated soul? How is that possible? Well, remember, all of the powers of the human being are in the soul and even sense powers are in the soul virtually speaking it just doesn't have the body to to manifest or exercise those powers with right Right. so some will say that god could perform a miracle to activate the sense powers inherent in the soul in the post-mortem state of existence to where the soul would experience a sensory pain as if it had the body now once again for your listeners this is purely speculative we're simply showing that this are possible ways in which god could inflict suffering to discharge the debt of temporal punishment give pain where pain is due right uh distinct from the pain that arises from purging the unhealthy attachments Mm -hmm. and then of course there is an alternative option that some mysterious way in which or by which god would inflict some positive pain from without mm. in order to bring about suffering for the soul. Now, that's a hard pill to swallow. A lot of modern people kind of are repulsed at that. But when you understand punishment as the infliction of pain on account of wrongdoing to manifest the divine order of justice, when you con- when you contextualize these positive inflictions of suffering upon the soul in this postmortem state of existence within that umbrella and that, con- that framework of just punishment, then it becomes more intelligible, right? Uh, But once again, the church has given us no definitive uh, teaching on the nature of the suffering, but that the debt of temporal punishment is discharged in purgatory, that is official church teaching. Uh, so, okay, those are some interesting... You asked me what was interesting about my research. Yeah, that was... Okay, so at... What's that, Eric? Other other religions, aspects of purgatory, right? H- hang on, before we go, go there, because I have a, a related question. Is it, at our judgment, do we receive a glimpse of the beatific vision that is then deprived of us? Yeah, it's is where, that, like, is you that now what causes, know a little bit more? Is that, is that, like, what causes the suffering in purgatory that, like, we know what it is that we now are being deprived of? Well, what, you're going to have a greater, you're going to increase in your knowledge of your telos, of your in, right, than what we have now because right. the desire is going to be stronger. Obviously, I mean, it, it doesn't it's seem not right a, that you a, would have a glimpse. A, of, it's not a glimpse of the beatific right, vision. Because you, you couldn't have it until you were purified, right? Right, right, right. right. But there is a, a cognitive awareness you know, of the potential or, or a cognitive awareness of like what you're ordered to with greater clarity than what you have now, which would give rise to an increase in the desire for that. So somehow goal. you're just aware of what it is that you don't have yet. 
Right. At the moment. Right. Correct. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I just wanted, that was my question. So, yeah. yeah, you did mention earlier about other, I don't know if it was maybe before we were recording, you mentioned that other religious traditions have some belief, aspects, some aspects yeah, of, of purgatory. purgatory. So I kind of started out the book with sort of this reasonable approach. Like within a variety of religious traditions, you find aspects of the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, right? Uh, enough, I just think that's fascinating. Yeah, that, that enough, they would have that. enough that could lead one to a reasonable conclusion like this general idea of undergoing suffering on account of wrongdoing that's temporary and not eternal, like it's 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 universally out there in religious traditions such that one could make a reasonable conclusion and think that very well may be an aspect of the afterlife. So you look cross religious traditions and they all think they all order their lives to some transcendent reality, right? They might call it God or something else, but the idea, the general idea of a transcendent reality is universal across cultures and religious traditions, and one can make a reasonable conclusion, well, that seems to be what reality is. There's something beyond us, right, that we can order our lives to. Similarly, with these aspects of purgatory, like undergoing temporary suffering on account of wrongdoing in a postmortem state of existence, we find it, for example, in Hinduism and Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, there are aspects of it. Now, it's going to be mixed with error, right? But Whenever you look at it through that lens, even in Greco, Greco-Roman belief, right? And, of course, in Judaism, right? Now, Judaism has a privileged place because God actually spoke to those people and guided them in revealing himself to them right. in limited ways. But in other religious traditions, when you find these aspects, you kind of see, well, yeah, it's reasonable to think that God was guiding and leading these people and by the light of reason to some aspects of the afterlife, right? And so that's kind of how I tee it up. And then I look at uh, aspects of purgatory found in a variety of Orthodox Christian beliefs, right? That they believe in a postmortem state of existence such that our prayers can affect them. Some Orthodox Christians affirm a purgatorial aspect, like a purgation aspect. Others do not. They deny. Really? Yeah, it's kind of a fuzzy, vague view like they affirm that they're in a state of existence and our prayers can assist them but they'll deny any they'll definitely deny this debt of discharging debt of temporal punishment right and deny any form of like the the, the emphasis on suffering they don't and believe in, in the not the, some temporal punishment right that, some 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 will deny but, but that, there are right? some who some who don't believe that right some 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 do I, I, and I point out in the book there is some evidence that some do affirm a, a sense of purgation and purification there, right. but others will deny it. Right? Interesting. But at the same time, affirm that our prayers can assist the dead. Okay. How? How yeah, do you yeah. square how those? Do you, what, what are the implications? Yeah. How do you work that out? Assisting that, the dead in what? Yeah, those are further questions to be asked in a dialogue with Orthodox Christianity. In my book, I don't go into that. I just okay. simply say. Here's the evidence. And so, and even among Protestant Christians, Martin Luther initially was affirming purgatory, later denied it, right? So you have As old, he did with a lot of things. Yeah, you have yeah. older you have old Protestantism where you have affirmation of purgatory and even contemporary Protestants. Jerry Walls has a book, The uh, Purgatory the Logic of Transformation. He's a Protestant Christian, right? And when you read the academic literature, you find many Protestants who affirm the reality of purgatory, but not full blown. Um, doctrine of Catholic purgatory. What about the Lutherans? 
Do you currently, know? currently the Lutherans. Yeah. Uh, it would. It I mean, would. I, as I understand, I. I think they would deny it currently. In their current right, state, right? Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, you might find an individual Lutheran who perhaps sure. might ascribe to it, but sure. generally speaking, I don't think. I'm not going to be definitive on that. And might of course, be proven there's, wrong, there's different councils of Lutherans. Yeah, you know, yeah, and, but yeah. I think generally speaking, they would they they would answer that question in the negative and okay. say no. Um, but this was an interesting thing. So among Protestant Christians who affirm "quote unquote" purgatory, they only emphasize. I have yet to find in in my research, and maybe I just need to go further, right? But the research I did for the book, I couldn't find any Protestant Christians affirming the Catholic understanding of purgatory as the discharging the debt of temporal punishment because they see that in conflict with the sufficiency of the death of Jesus on the cross, right? And that's a whole objection I address in the book as well. So they will deny any form or any idea of purgatory involving suffering on account of wrongdoing to discharge the debt of temporal punishment, but will affirm a purgation of guilt of venial sin or even a reordering of the will from unhealthy attachments. And some will even go so far as say, you're allowed to grow further in virtue, which we as Catholics would say, no, there's no growth in virtue. It's just right. removing the impediments. But that was something interesting that I discovered in the research is number one, hey, if you're a Christian and you deny purgatory, you're actually an outlier, right? I mean, so you have this massive Christian tradition out both in the Catholic Church and even outside the visible boundaries of the Catholic Church, both in Orthodox Christianity, at least some aspects of it, and among several Christian apologists, even C.S. Lewis affirmed purgatory, at least some aspects of And apparently of even some non-Christians who... Yeah, I mean, yeah. so to deny purgatory in an absolute sense, right, you're kind of the outlier, both within the whole of religious traditions and even within Christian religious traditions. See, right? I just think that's so fascinating, and I think it's a very strong argument because we know that God has written the truth on the hearts of man. Yeah. Okay, and so even these these men who are not Christian still are able to so discern... glimmers of it. Yes, yeah. you know, they have they participate in some yeah. elements of To be of clear, truth. we're not saying you can prove purgatory by the natural light of human reasons. Or no. It's a mystery taught to us definitively by the church, but there are glimmers of it but, to show that God was leading people in that process. But the right? fact that they would discern the same thing, you know, or, yeah. or, or, or like an idea... It. Right, general idea. It, you know, that kind of is, is an argument I, in, in I favor do. of... I do, I do. And so it at least gives one who denies purgatory reason to pause in their denial sure, and to yeah. reconsider. And for a Christian, it gives a Christian who denies purgatory to take a step back and say, well, wait a minute. Why are all these Christians believing in this stuff? Is there something to Christian revelation? Is there something there that, that I'm missing? these people are seeing that I'm not? Mm. And so... <clears throat> and I would answer yes, right? There is something there that you're missing. And so that at least gives a non-purgatorial believing Christian reason to reconsider their non-belief and look at the okay. evidence. So we, sh we should wrap this up pretty soon. <coughs> the last thing I want to ask you is about limbo. Is li oh, man. Yeah, is limbo the same as purgatory? No. What is limbo? Well, what do you mean? Limbo of the children or limbo of the fathers? 
I don't know anything <laughs> about Limbo. I, I know of Limbo of the Children. I don't know Limbo of the Fathers. All right, so Limbo of the Fathers is simply in the is tradition. Is that like the Jewish Limbo? Like yeah, in the, Jew, in the theological tradition, that was referred okay, to so where the righteous souls dwelt before in the Christ afterlife rose, before Christ ascended into ascended heaven. heaven okay. Abraham's bosom. Right. Bosom. Okay, yes. Sure. Okay, gotcha. Now, it is, it is true that those souls as well... If they had any remaining impediments to the beatific vision, they would have to be purged as well. Was there Abraham's bosom that place? Probably not, right? Because Abraham's bosom was a peaceful, blissful state of existence. Whether they experienced their purgation be before that peaceful existence or... We won't know until we yeah, see the other side yeah, of the veil. That's something that we just don't know. But limbo yeah. of the children, like classically, as you know, when you talk about limbo, that's kind of what people think about. So that's, first of all, first point to make, that's never been infallibly defined. Right. And the right, church has the moved church. away from that recently. Well, well, well I'm, first okay. point, oh, okay. I'm just yeah, in my I'm first sorry. statement. I'm sorry. All right. So it's not an infallible sorry. teaching. Now, that's my fault. Adam, calm down a little <laughs> I know, bit. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> I, pol- I, I was already apologizing. <laughs> now, when I when I did the research quite some time, a while back, I need to do some more research on it, I'll be honest with you. But when I initially did the research on Limbo of the Children, like, you do find the ordinary magisterium in the past wanting to protect that teaching. Never totally adhering to it and ascribing to it in an infallible way, but wanting to protect it and saying, but it, hey... It, it was we, an official... Yeah, it's it, an official yeah, thing. We, we, in, in-house at Catholicism, we would call it like a level three teaching. So level one, level two, they're both infallible. Level three is an ordinary teaching, but not infallible. But it's something that you can't go around denying. Right, right, because it's been there for a long time. <clears throat> yeah, so so you have you know magisterial references saying it would be rash to deny this. You know we don't we want to preserve it, don't deny it, etc. So that would like constitute it as common Catholic teaching, right? On level three, okay, or not infallible, but something we need to be taken serious and give religious submission of intellect and will to. Now, the, question, the next question is, where does the magisterium stand on this topic today, right? Number one, the church has never denied it. That's important. Like, the magisterium has never come out and say, we no longer believe in the limbo of the children. So what we said before was wrong, right? Church has never done that one, all right? Never uh, done that with anything. Uh, n- definitely nothing infallible. Yes. I will leave wiggle room... Right, and I know this is going to open up a can of worms for your, some of your listeners. Okay, but I will affirm that the, definitely the church has never done anything of such a thing concerning infallible doctrine. Right, okay. I will leave room in principle for non-infallible doctrine that the church could do that. Has it done it for level three? Has it done it? In fact, I haven't found anything yet. Okay. Some will argue there is, but then there's debate about historical circumstances changing things, right? Yeah. Uh, but when you put those off to the side, man, you have a hard okay. time finding examples, in fact, of We're the church changing non We're not talking about what the say, okay? Like. <laughs> uh, but, but the point, but no, that's an important question, right? All these distinctions of levels of church teaching, because this is a big debate amongst yeah. theologians and, and, right and now. And I don't, I'm not trying to make it hairy and, you know, <clears> like... Oh, yes, level, you are. level three. Okay, but, so, but, it, but it's important. Yeah, it is important. So the question is, I'm where not. does the magisterium stand on the limbo of the children today? Well, the church has never denied it, right, okay. and rejected it. Uh, next question, has the church changed her maybe presentation of it? 
And I think that there's a, yeah, like the church I, is not going around teaching the limbo of children, right? And catechism and stuff like that. So it does seem to be wanting to move away, move from, away it. from it. Right. But, but, but here's here's what the church does teach, right? So in its in the catechism of the Catholic Church, when it's talking about the baptism of infants, right, the question comes up, what about unbaptized babies? And you would think, okay, here's an opportunity for the church to affirm the limbo of the children. It doesn't affirm nor does it deny. But what it does say is that um, we do not know of any other means by which one you know, can enter into heaven, right? So we, we can't say for sure unbaptized babies immediately go to heaven. The church can't say that because she doesn't know that, right? It's not right. divinely revealed. But what the church does say is that given the fact that Jesus says, let the children come to me, given his desire for all to be saved, the church teaches that we have good reason to hope that God would communicate the graces of baptism to those unbaptized babies. Especially because right? there's a baptism by desire. Yeah, uh, some speculate uh, about that. You know, well, if, the, if the parents are desiring to baptize the child, they're unable to. Maybe God takes that into consideration. I'm open to that because sure. there's principles in sacred scripture that would lend itself to that theological If they had conclusion. the opportunity to do it, they would absolutely do it. Sure, sure. I'm open to that. Um, but notice, though, that the church is not denying the limbo of the children, nor is the church affirming the limbo of the children in the catechism. It's presenting a reason to hope. And that's where the church stands yeah. on the limbo of the children today. But, but to me, that's not necessarily a change in no, teaching. No, I, 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 I it, would it's say just, it's not a change. It's yeah, not a change. Catechists of today aren't going around uh, making this an emphasis. Right. But that does. Nor is the magisterium emphasizing it in her magisterial documents. But just because just because they're not emphasizing this in education doesn't mean that they're changing their belief. Okay. In it. Now watch this. There are some who would argue that because, like in the past, you could classify limbo of the children as this ordinary common Catholic doctrine, right? Not okay. infallible, okay. but common Catholic doctrine. Some will present an argument that because the church has been silent on the matter for such a long time and has not emphasized it, has not affirmed it, has not spoken about it, and when having the opportunities to affirm it, but not affirming it, although not denying it, and sort of like slipping away from it, I'll be honest, it does seem to be that way, some will argue that it's dropped. The, the level of teaching and the weight of the teaching, the magisterium has understood that authority to have been lessened, right? So, like, okay. the teaching would have been dropped to a permitted theological opinion. So, like, a Catholic could theologically hold limbo of the children and be in good standings with the church. A Catholic, some will say, could deny the limbo of the children and still be in good standing with the church. But has that... That's always been but, the case. But, but well... Even it, as an ordinary teaching, it's never been required that a Catholic believe... It's required that a Catholic give religious submission of intellect and will. And what that involves is that one must not publicly dissent from it. But if you can't ascribe to it or assent to it individually in your conscience, you would not be under the pain of mortal sin. 
But okay. you could not go around dissenting Pub- from publicly. it unless you have the competence to do so in like theological journal articles to be analyzing this teaching, the weight of the teaching, the reasons for the teaching. And the church does permit its theologians to debate those issues, right? Even though mama says, you, child, who's not competent to do this stuff, be quiet, right? Don't dissent from it. Although it's not infallible, right? Uh, but getting back to that's an or, that's because it's an ordinary teaching, ordinary common teaching that's non-infallible. But however, now the argument is that it has dropped to a dropped. level of theological opinion. But okay. that can be disputed, right? There's dispute about that. All right. So the question is, has the church's silence, and when given the opportunity to affirm, not affirming, although not denying, is that evidence? for the level of teaching dropping from this level three, you might say, a common Catholic doctrine to a theological opinion. Some will dispute that. And I don't know, I'll be honest with you, I don't know where I'm going to fall on that, on that debate. Sure. I, I, yeah, I, I'm just I, I'm kind I of like either. on the fence. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it requires a lot more research. Not and that it matters what I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, because some will argue and say, hey, listen, man, you know, the church has never abrogated what it said in the past right. in an ordinary way. And so that still stands, right? And that still has weight. And so we need to be relating to it as such. So this is where, like, we're in the weeds right here, yeah, right? We're yeah. in, like, some cool weeds, I might add. Not that I'm trying to get hairy. <laughs> but 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 it is an interesting I'm question. I'm not hairy. <laughs> you know, the thing is that what the church says now and what she has always said is that we entrust these souls to the mercy of God. For unbaptized infants for, you're for, talking for about. For unbaptized yes, infants. Yes, that's that, what the church is saying. And, and that's that a beautiful thing, we right? We rely and we, we have absolute trust in God's mercy and yes. that he will reasons that, to that say he will we care have, for these souls. I'm a, I will say this: to say that we have reasons to hope. That's, I mean, that's not like totally strong, but that's pretty strong, right? Like, that's like giving peace and consolation to somebody whose infant is has died. Well, unfortunately, well this is this is a good baptism. way to wrap it up. Yeah, it, dare saying, we? Dare we hope? No, Dave. You said you weren't trying well, well, to get into the weeds. Whoa, 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 whoa. This is look, very cool, look man. At, look at Dave. <laughs> so on I'm this, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying. On this topic, yes. Dare we hope. But concerning whether all will end up in heaven at the end Re- of time. Remember when we were talking about earlier we'll about deceiving? We'll leave that open for another We were talking about deceiving. Okay, anyway. <laughs> uh, so but this is a good way to wrap it up. Is because is Balthazar in heaven or <laughs> hell? That's okay. what I want to know. Who gave a fighting word? That's, <laughs> yeah. a, that's a, a can of you-know-what question right there, brother. But this is a good way to wrap it up because we're because. Ultimately, we we do need to wrap it up. Purgatory. We got a married couples retreat to go on. Yeah, purgatory is a mercy, and we thank God for purgatory because it. Oh, amen. Because it is a is a it is a mercy to to amen to to get people to heaven. I don't want I don't want to go there, but if I end up there, I will be so thankful. Yeah, God desires us to be with, with him. him and so he gives us every right. opportunity so that always, if, we we don't, if we don't end up there it's due to our own fault and for those of us who try our darndest to stay in friendship with him and we succeed by his grace but yet aren't in, aren't perfect we don't have that perfect holiness yet 
God does allow us to undergo a purification so that we could. I mean, because theoretically, to God. God could have an order of providence right. to where those souls just remain in this postmortem state of existence that's not hell and not heaven for the rest of their existence. God right. could have ordered that. Sure. Right. But, he, but will, he didn't. He desires to be, he yes. desires us to be with him. Yes. So, yeah. And so as the subtitle of my book says, good news about the afterlife for those who aren't perfect yet. So be on the lookout right. for purgatories for real. But as Our Lady told uh, St. Bernadette at Fatima, penance, 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 penance. penance. We, we, we do, not, do not waste a moment in our life now. We should be devoting ourselves to holiness. Perfection is possible in this life. Yes. By God's grace, we can become perfect in this life if we are willing to submit our own and sacrifice our own attachments to sin. To his to his ordering to the cross to the cross right. right we and as men this is our calling we yeah. are called to offer ourselves offer our bodies to our wives and ultimately to the to the church yeah. in service of Christ our King so that we might become holy ourselves and make our world bring sanctification upon the whole world yes and get what you said it is possible. That we can die with such a fervent degree of charity yes. that no purification would remain. The Catechism yes. teaches in paragraph 1472, a conversion which proceeds from a fervent charity can attain the complete purification of the sinner in such a way that no punishment would remain. Mm. So is it possible to achieve a state of sanctity at the end of our lives such that no purgatory is necessary and we can immediately go into the beatific vision? Yes. Yes. And should we ought, ought we to strive, strive for, for that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Because that's what's yes. ultimately going to make us the, the happiest. That's right. That is that is what the Christian life is calling us to. And so well, let's get back to your and, statement, penance, penance, penance. And it, and it is what God's calling well, that's what I say. all it's of us. Ultimately, I mean, what, what yeah, the Christian life is calling us to. It's going to make us happy, but ultimately it's for God's glory. And that's for, right. you know, that That's why he put us on this earth. Right. So that we might know him, love him, and serve him in this life. Serve him now. Serve him now. Do not wait for the afterlife to serve him. This is the moment in which God is calling you to be holy, in which God is calling you to serve him and those around you. He has given you people. He is in your life. He has given you a vocation that is either your wife or it is uh, his spouse, the church. Preach it, it, brother. It is one of these two people. So... Look at look around in your life. Who is God calling you to serve? Serve them with your whole self, and you will serve Christ, and you will become holy, and we will all rejoice in heaven. Amen, brother. Cheers to Jesus. Cheers to Jesus. Cheers to Jesus.